Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 136, All That Matters Is What We Do. This week we're discussing series 9, episode 8 of Doctor Who, The Zygon Inversion, and season 2, episode 16 of Angel, Epiphany. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. Zygon inversion. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is this was an interesting episode. I was saying how uh, I didn't realize till my second viewing how long that sort of final scene well it's not technically the final scene but like Mm -hmm. the scene with the boxes Mm -hmm. uh actually is like it's upwards of 10 minutes long yeah um and i mean i guess it's it's something to the acting and the writing and all of that that i didn't notice it (laughs) particularly the first time around but um yeah it doesn't feel long or slow um no as you're watching it but it's you know this isn't other than like in the beginning where you have like the, you know, result of Clara, well, Bonnie firing off the, you know, missile, you know, at the airplane, like there's no real action. Um, You know, a couple, uh, okay. uh, uh, Sorry. What's her name? You know, shoots a couple of Zygons, but uh, uh, Kate, Kate. Thank you. Sorry. Um, You know, uh, shoots a couple of Zygons here and there, but like, other than that, there's not like a lot, there's no like, it's not like physical, there's not like a lot of running and Mm-mm. explosions and, you know, even like jumping in the TARDIS and going and doing stuff. There's a little bit of that, again, with the beginning stuff, but yeah, it's not like, you know, it, it's like very much a sort of like, I don't know, just philosophical and mm. talking through problems and, you know discussing like sort of high concept kind of stuff um which i I like like i don't i'm yeah i'm not saying that's a bad thing at all like i just um it's definitely a different sort of episode i and i feel like just even comparing it with the first part Mm -hmm. um of this pair where you get the you know like swat teams and you know the uh maybe not action but like the suspense of like you know going into like uh an abandoned building and waiting for sort of the zygons to come get you kind of thing you know like yeah um yeah it has that more like political thriller kind of feel it feels like that kind of movie like a you know um so i you know anyway like i i just i definitely wanted to like sort of point that out before we get started because um i do want to spend some time on that ending yeah not ending again like there is another sort of scene after it but um you know that that scene in the basement there where they have the boxes and they're kind of uh have their little war game scenario so to speak yeah and and before we get into like the specific like character points and everything i guess from like more like overarching point of view I feel like that's a really good point and I really like this episode too because and I I I think I pointed out maybe off air that I really like the title um of this episode the Zygon inversion because 
the Zygon Invasion just feels like the most obvious title ever, you know, for an episode of Doctor Who. Like, sure. you know, Nate, that's the kind of like Mad Libs version of how you title a Doctor Who episode, like invasion of the insert alien name here. Right. Like, well, it, and it, it, and because it's absolutely it, just, it, it's not necessarily bad. It's just very, it does, it tells you exactly what it is. Whereas, this one, the the kind of play on words of the Zygon inversion, the whole episode is a big inversion. It just, it 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 switches things and takes them in a direction you don't expect, and it subverts your expectations. So, like, what you feel, and maybe that is reflected in the story. So, like, whereas part one is a very standard, you know, political kind of thriller, alien invasion, and it's all the setup for that. Part two, not that it, it's not like it stops being about those things, but it deals with them in unexpected ways. So rather than have it become a showdown based on fighting or action or, you know, you know, all these things, it becomes about like, you know, two actors sitting in a room, you know, uh, giving really impassioned emotional speeches and, you know, talking each other into viewpoints rather than like fighting it out to see who will win and everything. So I kind of like that it absolutely sets you up for a really kind of obvious story and then takes you somewhere different. Um, you were starting yeah. to say something and I kept going. So yeah, no, with, uh, when you were talking about this sort of obviousness of the invasion, like you, you get to like, although it's technically not like, um, uh, you know, invasion of the body snatchers or something. Mm -hmm. It it has that feel because it's like they're taking human form and yeah. you don't know who is who and all of that. So, <laughs> you know, it's not, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. It's not quite, um, you know, like bad eggs with Buffy where it's like the same people just sort right. of as hosts to, you know, an invading species, but it, it does sort of give that sense of it. And we're, you know, and, you know, being invasion and sort of having that same idea that it's like taking over these bodies, mm -hmm. um, especially to the point where now they're like killing them. They're not just like capturing them and storing them away in pods somewhere, but right. um, you know, they're actually capturing them, you know, or uh, killing them. And so you, you do get the sense of like replacement and, and more of a, that militaristic feel, but then, yeah, like you said, with the inversion of it, um, you know, it's it, it's not just, I, I mean, there's the plot inversion, of course, of like, oh, wow, they don't actually end up invading, or at least, I mean, they're still, they still invaded, but like, yeah. it's not a bad invasion, like the peace holds and, and you get that stuff. Um, but also just that idea of like, sort of the Zygon, like the humanification humanizing i guess mm. would i almost said humanification I, I pulled like a Corey moment there where like he's <laughs> searching for like a new word for a word that's actually already existing <laughs> right, yeah. um but yeah you know a humanizing element of um where you know literally the form that they take is is the point is that now that's what they are um and we'll get into like sort of the osgood question too uh, yeah 
you know, in a, in a little bit, um, which I think touches on all of that. But I wanted to start um, talking about Clara and Bonnie. Mm -hmm. um, at least Bonnie, that's her preferred name. Um, and uh, sort you know, of a strange name, Bonnie. It's, a, it's kind of cheerful and sweet. <laughs> well, and yes, not only that, but also very human, right? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. this is like why, you know, you almost get the feeling that like by taking that name, you know, and sort of eschewing her Zygon name, mm -hmm. um, which again, I can't remember what it is. Uh, I don't even think we get one. Um, but presumably yeah, the doctor, she has one. The doctor calls her something else. Well, he he keeps calling her Zygella, but I think that's like oh, he's okay. mocking that just her. Like... I don't think that's her real name. Um, yeah. I think it's like, you know, Little Miss Zygon or something. It's like a, a kind of mocking name okay. that he's okay. given her. I guess I didn't realize that. I thought that was an actual name. But right. Anyway. No, I don't think we um, get like an actual given name for her. Okay. Well, then maybe what I was about to say doesn't make as much sense. But just the fact that, like, Bonnie is a very, one, it's a diminutive name, right? Yeah. Like, with the IE. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I guess what? It might be Bonita or something like that. You know, like, or I don't know what right. a longer name, longer, other longer form of Bonnie might be. But, um, you know, the fact that, like, it's it's very much a human name. Like, it's it's just a name that you just call someone else so like like there's that inversion too like we're not you know by taking on the disguise you're you, you know it's kind of that that thing of uh sort of the aristotelian ethics kind of thing like in order to be good you have to act good mm -hmm. um and actually just even saying that like makes me realize how even much better like our title for, the, for this week all that all that matters is what we do like yeah that by that by acting good, you are good. Like, you know, okay, maybe your intentions are bad, but you're doing good things. And so, like, if you do that enough times, it just becomes habit. And so then you're, like, doing good all the time. You know what I mean? So it's like that yeah. that, that thing of, okay, Bonnie, for most of the episode, wants to, you know, start a war and destroy humanity. Those things aren't good. But there's also that sense of like, even from the beginning, even something as small as choosing the name Bonnie, which is sort of mundane. I mean, there's not, you know, it's not a particularly common name, but it's not like right. rare either. You know, right, like right. You, there's enough Bonnies out there that we recognize it and, and don't think it's too weird. And, um, you know, taking the form of a human and all of that, like that, it, it's all of that stuff that throughout the episode is just sort of natural and, you know, comes to her, you know, through the choices that she makes and, and, and the preferences that she has that ultimately seem to be um, at least as much an impact on her final decision as the doctor's sort of speech itself. Mm -hmm. Like, like those seem to be contributing factors anyway, into sort of her final recognition. And, and the doctor even sort of says that at the end, right? Like, Oh, why are you making this decision? Because you're human or you at least have an element of humanity in you. Mm -hmm. And, and it's because of those things of like taking on the form and taking on a human name and, and that sort of thing that I think ultimately leads to that, um, 
you know, that decision that she makes at the end. Right. Well, it's that idea of, it's kind of a literalization of, of that idea of what we keep. I feel like we talk about this a lot of, of empathy of, you know, Mm. if you, you know, by putting yourself in the place of somebody else, you can't help, but, you know, become, if you're open and receptive, you can't help but become affected by, you know, uh, you know, being moved by somebody else. And so, you know, there's some, maybe there's something about the physical process of becoming, you know, being human for a little while or putting herself in Clara's place that has that humanizing Mm. effect of the, it's harder to think of the enemy when, you know, it's harder to think of the other as an enemy when you can understand them, when you can be them for a little bit, you know, and um, there's some sort of, you know, effect that the physical process has on you, I think. Sure. Um, and the doctor kind of points that out with his, like, he's kind of using it metaphorically, but I think it's literally true for Bonnie about, you know, what happened to you? Same thing. I let Clara Oswald in my head, you know? So just this idea of spending time with Clara or putting yourself in her shoes has a, you know, humanizing effect on, sure. you know, if you, if you come into contact with other people, it's harder to think of them as sort of dehumanized, you know, faceless enemies, I think. Sure. Um, so just, you know, being transformed seems to have a effect on Bonnie as the story goes on. Um, and actually just um, right now, I kind of Googled the name Bonnie because um, I wanted to see if there were other forms of it that I wasn't familiar with. But um, it seems like it is, you know, a, a Scottish name, you know, so like the word Bonnie being diminutive, being like, you know, if something is small and pretty, you know, um, mm. like you think of like Bonnie Prince Charlie or like, you know, there's like Scott's dialect poems where it's like, Bonnie you know, Lass. my, my yeah. Bonnie, you know, Bairn and all that sure. kind of thing that, and, and it is that kind of slightly like, it, it's not a threatening name at all. It's so it's very cute. And, you know, um, you know, it kind of maybe belies that she's has a gentler nature than, she really would like to think. Um, and actually, uh, the Google, Google is telling me that um, it's also kind of, you know, the Scots dialect Bonnie is deriving from, um, you know, th that being meaning beautiful, you know, which is coming from the Latin, you know, bonus meaning good. So, sure, you know, sure. as someone who is kind of making you know, having to make good choices. I feel like that fits her pretty well. Um, hmm. You know, so it ends up being kind of a little bit more appropriate than, you know, which is interesting. It makes you wonder why she chose it, but, um, you know, yeah, I'm, eventually I'm sure she, she wasn't, comes to fit the name, you know. I'm sure she wasn't thinking of the etymology or anything like that, but. Uh, Not so much. Yeah. Um, so. Between Bonnie and Clara, too, I wanted to talk a little bit about their relationship, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and and maybe this is part of it, right? Because um, 
and we've talked about how Clara has sort of gone away from being like the heart or the conscience of the doctor and become more doctor like herself. Mm-hmm. But there's also the fact that there's like the literal physical connection between them, right? This is the, uh, uh, you know, like the moment where, well, not the moment, but like the whole conversation where they're, you know, talking and Bonnie sort of reveals like, oh yeah, by the way, we're like, I can feel everything that you can feel. And mm-hmm. so like our heartbeats are linked and I can tell when you're lying and, you know, or telling the truth and all that kind of thing. And that's, you know, a pretty intimate connection to someone like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even sort of the closest, you know, couple that's been together for years and years, like, yeah, maybe you can figure out how to read them, but it's still an external thing, right? Like, yeah, it, like you still don't necessarily ever know what's in someone's mind automatically or, or, you know, feel it to that level. So there's definitely um, an interesting connection there. And I wonder too, so I, I wonder how much of that becomes sort of an influence on her as well. Mm. Like not just the physiological response, but is she also getting sort of the emotional responses right. of like, maybe she can tell, you know, okay, when Clara is lying or telling the truth, but, is there also, is there like also signals there? Like, is she getting like Clara's, the fact that Clara doesn't want to tell the truth because clearly she doesn't want like everyone to die. And so like um, that, and also like at one point Clara, now this might be, this might be after, I can't remember if this is when she's still sort of trapped or after she gets out, but Mm. um, you know, where Clara talks about like, you know, there's what, 7 million Zygons versus 7 billion, mm-hmm. you know, or 20 million and 7 billion or what, what right. you know, the drastically different numbers yeah. of, you know, Zygons to humans and uh, sort of showing concern, like, for the peaceful Zygons too. Like, it doesn't just yeah. end with, like, humanity, but it's like not, you know, she says not everyone wants to be the way that you are like not everyone wants to uh you you know your own people like not not even all of your own people want to be involved in this and you're forcing their hand you're forcing them you know to join this conflict that you don't that you want but they don't want they're perfectly fine and they're happy uh or at least content being the way that they are yeah um you know in in this peace that they have um, and for uh, Bonnie, it's, well, you know, they can't be who they are. But again, like going back to that, um, you know, that idea of of you are what you do mm. in a way is, is that, well, but they are being who they are. Like they're human. Right. Because that's what they're, that's how they're acting. And okay, maybe... Like, like I can understand the argument of like, you know, I mean, that. so you could almost take it like in a body image sort of way, right? Like mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to feel like ashamed because I'm overweight or, you know, because maybe right. I'm uglier than someone else in someone's opinion or whatever. Like right. I should just be who I am because that's who I am and that's the way I was made and all of that. And yes, that's true in a sense, but 
that doesn't necessarily mean that if you like to dress up a certain way or put on makeup or do your hair in a certain style that you're not being who you are like that style is part of you and if you're happy right. and content to sort of follow those fashion trends or you know do whatever like that's fine too like the whole point is that it's your choice as an individual to be able to dress look style yourself the way that you want and so if these zygons are okay with being that way then you know especially if the alternative is mass panic and possibly being killed or probably being killed then why would you interrupt that um and so like while i think you can make an argument on bonnie's side for that case like the fact that she's she's sort of negating any sort of moral high ground that she might have mm. by making it not a choice but by forcing other zygons hands in that matter um, right right so so even where like she might also you know she might initially have a good argument as a starting point you know that like yes zygons should be allowed to be zygons to then go and say well but any zygon who chooses not to look like themselves like is going to be forced to look like themselves that just undercuts any like sort of moral or ethical right. statement that she has right uh, you know to begin with yeah no i think she's definitely if if she's a villain at all i think she's definitely a sympathetic one you know that that she's one of these antagonists that you can see where she's coming from you know there are good points buried in you know the villainy i think like you know, and I think like, you know, another metaphor I might use would be any um, any kind of condition where, you know, passing becomes like, you know, yeah. a, a state of, you know, whether that's like, you know, pretending to be white if you're not or pretending to be straight if you're not, you know, like something where kind of your true self could be you could pretend to be yeah. something normal you know and, and i think i pointed that out last time they keep using this word normalize like there's this there's sure. this kind of standard of pure normality which is you know um which you know i think bonnie and the rebel zygons kind of say normalize gleefully like you know let your Zygon flag fly, like be who you are, be it proudly and don't kind of conform to, you know, society's standards of, you know, what, you know, beauty is or what, you know, your true self is and everything. But so from that point of view, you can, I think, understand there are good motivations or, or sympathetic impulses from where she's coming from. Um, but, and I think we'll talk about this more when you talk about like the, the big scene in the basement, you kind of realize how quickly by kind of the actions that she's done and taking matters into her own hands, you know, inevitably she becomes the thing that she's fighting against. You know, she's on her way to becoming the kind of tyrant that she's fighting about, you know, like, you know, rather than be treated like cattle she'll be the one who treats her own people like cattle you know um by you know because the only way to force them to not conform is to f 
force them into the open where they will be hurt. You know, it's it's forcing the Saigon guy to sort of change and, you know, and so he ends up sort of trapped and isolated and ends up killing himself because he doesn't see any other way to live. Um, or like you imagine, you know, her larger plan is, you know, provoke this war and even when they can't win it, you know, well, at least they'll die fighting for who they are. But, you know, she's going to get them all killed in the process. So like, you know, definitely there's a tension between like, you know, she might have good, uh, she might have once have had, you know, good impulses, but they've become sort of, I don't know, overwhelmed by the, questionable means to achieving what she wants um yeah and you pointed out too i really do like that moment with clara of her saying um uh about you know 20 million zygons against 7 billion humans that's not a war you can win where you really feel clara's concern for the zygons as people mm -hmm. you know like and and not even just the peaceful ones but just as a as a race of people like you know she really is trying to convince bonnie not to do this because you know people will be killed you know yeah. um and it doesn't even matter who so i really like that you see clara's clara's yeah. empathy in that moment like that's kind of what you know the thing which bonnie is missing bonnie has all the righteous anger and and at the beginning is is lacking in the kind of like you know empathy department um yeah. which is i think what she learns by the end that's kind of what she gains that she didn't have before maybe she still has some of the righteous anger and still has the wish to you know fight for her people but also kind of has a new i don't know perspective on what that means that she didn't have before um yeah. Well, and, you know, just occurred to me, like, sort of another part of the inversion could be um, that in, in this context, these Zygons are, are actually more like refugees almost than they are, yeah. uh, you know, actually like invading species. Like, yeah. yes, they're, they're like, we've saw that sort of idea of the invasion and all of that. But there's there's also a sense that like, yeah, like this, these are it is not just like a simple invasion of like wanting to take over necessarily there's no maybe that was originally it but like there was there's also the sense of like they're they're sort of a doomed species and they're kind of living out the rest of their lives you know yeah. it, the rest of their existence as best as they can um but yeah um no and that feels very timely obviously especially with you have this overwhelming majority of you know peaceful refugees and then you know a splinter group as the doctor says of you know these radicals who um are not necessarily representative of the larger population but you know bonnie can cause an awful lot of trouble on her own you know um more so, you know, she can make things difficult for everybody just, you know, with a small, you know, group of people on her side. Um, mm -hmm. So, 
Yeah, and I think this episode came out the week that there were the attacks in Paris. So, um, I don't know. It felt very strange to watch it. And and especially the scene, you know, uh, if the doctor's speech at the end wasn't emotional and powerful enough, kind of having him lecture you from the TV about, you know, talking <laughs> and right. like, you know, and all that kind of thing. And it just, it was like, all right, you know, there's something obviously in the zeitgeist at the moment, but, um, <laughs> but I like that it doesn't treat Bonnie or the Zygons as invading villains either. They're not mustache twirling, you know, they're not Daleks, you know, they're not pure evil killing machines, you know, most of them are, are, you know, decent you know, peaceful people who just, like the guy says, just wants to live. And, you know, and even even Bonnie, I think, isn't really a very black and white character. Um, and certainly by the, by the end, she's not at all, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so I don't know that I have much more to say about Clara and Bonnie together, although sort of individually there's more to say i think when we talk about the doctor <laughs> sure. um, later um any any other sort of thoughts before we move on i had one or two other things with clara um one i kind of like um when she wakes up in the beginning and is sort of in her dream apartment and everything's sort of surreal i like that she kind of catches on to the fact and and even has she kind of goes and does her dream checks like this is the I kind of like this idea of like, this is one of the skills she's learned from the doctors, how to recognize if you're in a dream and then how to do like your checks to make sure like, you know, you have a little scientific experiment you can perform to see if it's, you know, real or not. So um, I kind of enjoyed that. And um, the other thing was her, the kind of casual line about, um, when Bonnie tells her not to lie and she says, you know, that's your problem. I'm a brilliant liar. However, you, how are you ever going to know? I like that kind of, I feel like the lying was more upfront in the last season, but that continuation of that being one of Clara's traits is what a skillful liar she is. And, you know, she's, she kind of can't do much about it this episode because Bonnie, like you said, they're, they're linked not only physically, but maybe emotionally too. So she can't, you know, just, you know, fake her out. But you kind of get the idea that under normal circumstances, Clara knows how good a liar she is. And she's pretty good at using that. Um, and she even does like a pretty good job of telling half-truths to sort of, you know, like hide the truth, you know, like about... Uh, you know, I can't give you access because you have it already. Like, you know, mm -hmm. just seeing a little bit more of that cleverness and everything. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially with Clara being taking a little bit more of a backseat this season, it's nice to see her, you know, being more active and being, you know, smart and capable and all those things. Um, I just enjoyed that with her. So. Sure. Um, okay. 
So I wanted to talk about the doctor and Osgood a bit too, because we get, we sort of get like Clara and Bonnie. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost say going around together, but they don't really go around together. They just converse. Be, right. Like, I, which, okay. So sorry. No, I'm not done with Clara and Bonnie because mm-hmm. like their conversation, like Clara's asleep, but not asleep. Like, um, oh, because the other thing I want to talk about is like, how much it sort of reminded me like her little um you know mental room there that mm. she's in how much it reminded me of the first time we see clara as oswin mm. in the dalek that's a good connection um yeah or as a dalek i guess i should say right. um i never thought of it that way but that's really good but but yeah there's a and and the conversing happening sort of through like a tv that like a two-way tv screen and yeah you know some parallels there um and i don't i don't know what to do with that like i don't like she's not a dalek here and like she's not she doesn't become a zygon sort of like that's not the of the inversions that happen that's not one of them (laughs) right 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 um so i don't i don't know that like i want to take it too far but i i did want to sort of mention that i thought of that when I first saw that. Um, yeah, no, that is a really good parallel. Uh, but yeah, like, so while sort of Claire and Bonnie are doing their thing, uh, and, and it's weird too, because like Bonnie goes to her to like stand in front of her at one point, right? But then mm-hmm. like, apparently they're still connected, even though like she kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Like, I'm not entirely yeah. clear on... Maybe the, the connection extent. strengthens the closer you get. Yeah, like I guess I, I guess that's part of the, my confusion. There is like I wasn't clear why she had to go there to sort of connect with right. Clara to begin with, but you know what? Like it's it's a minor point. I'm not like sure, bothered sure. that much by it. Um. Okay, so like while there while that's happening, you also get the Doctor and Osgood. Um, and so uh, you know, again, we get the you know, plane stuff at the beginning and they sort of, you know, they escape and there's a parachute with a Union Jack on it. And, um, <laughs> it's camouflage, <laughs> British camouflage. <laughs> Which is just a funny thought in yeah, and of itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, so, okay, so the 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 big thing I want to talk about with Oz when, um not the only thing necessarily, but is this continued question of which Oz, Oswin, I said, Osgood. Osgood, yeah. Uh, she is. So, all right, we have Oswin and Oswald, Oswald and, and Osgood. Osgood. Yeah. There's a lot of Oz names. Yeah. Um, but Osgood, like the continued question of which Osgood she is. Is she human or Zygon? And mm-hmm. her patent refusal to tell yeah. the doctor. So, like... You get that sense of like the doctor being like, okay, it's just the two of us. Yeah, which, right. Which, when he sends Clara which, away, which, yeah. which one are you? Come <laughs> we're on. you, we're you, alone you now. Me. Yeah, yeah. And his insistence that he needs to know, and to her credit, her continued yeah. insistence that no, actually, you don't need to yeah. know. Like, yeah. you're perfectly fine not knowing. And in fact, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Um, that you don't need to know, and um. Okay, so I'm skipping to the end, but like sure. you know, the point that she makes at the end of, I'll tell you when it doesn't matter. Yeah. Which, like, 
it's again the point like it shouldn't matter it shouldn't matter at all and if it doesn't matter then of course the doctor wouldn't be curious and keep asking about it so that's obviously like you know it's it's one of those uh uh, it's a moo point as joey from friends might say uh (laughs) you know it's it's that thing of really it's not like me telling you isn't going to help our situation any because the doctor is almost being hypocritical maybe not almost maybe he's just being hypocritical Mm -hmm. and in that sense of you know it's like every life matters but like some kind of matter more more than others Um, yeah you know and or well everybody's equal but some people are more equal than others kind of thing sure yeah exactly no and i think like the doc i i think i feel comfortable calling the doctor hypocritical in the sense that we all are like it's that kind of it doesn't matter how enlightened and progressive and you know uh you know liberal you are there's such a thing as like disconscious prejudice you know that you know you can't you can't help you know we're all guilty of it you know and maybe knowing as much as he wants to think of them as equals her telling him like you said would only encourage him in making assumptions you know about which of them you know like if he knows which one is which he can't help but make assumptions about that and so you know by refusing to tell him hopefully that you know uh does something to sort of you know i don't know diffuse that kind of label making and everything that goes along with knowing which is which yeah um and i and i like that i like the further complications of how we still don't know which one died if it was the human or the zygon and now we've got another one who we don't know if it's two zygons or whether one of them is human and then we don't know which one is bonnie or and which one is osgood either so like there's layers upon layers of you know confusion as to who is who and just a flat refusal to you know explain any of it um which is kind of great yeah no and that's what i was actually just going to say too is is i i like her how she sort of stands her ground Mm -hmm. um and and you know in some ways like even even more so than any of the companions ever do and not that like i mean clara certainly has her moments where she sort of stands her ground against the doctor and Mm -hmm. Amy did and Donna did and like you can go back but sure um one she refuses to become a companion like Mm -hmm. just on that point alone like yeah that's something that most people don't really do I mean Donna Mm kind of did the first time around but then you know later right right um but yeah like how many people just sort of off the bat like I feel like even most people would at least be like, okay, one trip. Like, right, right. It, it might be cool to sort of check out, even if you end up not being like a full time, yeah, uh, companion. But 
Osgood clearly wants to, and clearly, you know, is a fan of the doctor and, and is maybe even hoping for that exact invitation, Mm -hmm. but she winds up turning him down, um, out of that sort of greater sense of duty. And I think it's that same sense of duty that she has, uh, you know, that, that sort of keeps helps her keep her guard up against the doctor as far as telling him mm-hmm. you know this is not this is not going to happen like i'm not i'm just not going to give you that information yeah um so yeah i don't know um uh any other sort of stuff between Clara or the doctor and Osgood um because I mean again like not including maybe the speech and all of the basement stuff that we'll sure get to no I later. think that I think that kind of covers it um no let's talk about I want to give enough time to the the yeah. big scene so let's well that's why I just that. looked up and saw <laughs> we're like we have like 20 minutes left and I feel yeah. like we're we're we've got plenty to talk about in that sure 20 sure um so yeah so the the big speech um you know so they all you know this the plot driven you know uh meeting where they all end up in the same room at the same Mm. time and you know and of course like we know that this has all happened before right um right like they've been in this room not maybe bonnie but like all the others have been here before and, um, you know, have been sort of in talks with the Zygons and, um, yeah, that's what this whole thing stems from. Um, and from the day of the doctor. And I like how the doctor even incorporates that. Like, yeah, I set all this up on a very important day for me. Like, like this was kind of a big day (laughs) for me, uh, when I, you know, was working with, to others of myself and uh he doesn't go into that level of detail but sure you know, sure but we, we understand what he means by that. the backstory yeah, there yeah um but so i guess maybe let's start with the situation of the room of the boxes right so we yeah. have two boxes each that has two buttons so four buttons total mm. um and the pair in each box is, is truth and consequences, which is an interesting setup, right? Because where did that come from? Like that has been the tagline of the Zagons all right. along. Right. Um, and, you know, the we have the city in, um, you know, yeah. uh, New Mexico or wherever it is. Um, mm-hmm. So... I'm curious as to how, like, why, <laughs> like, and I'm not saying we, you know, or does sure. anyone know, but like, that's just like, it's like, how does that, like, how did that happen? And of course, that's what Bonnie is wondering too. Like, that's, Clara, I guess, knows that maybe this is the thing that she's going to want to talk to her about again. I think um, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of any, like, other particular reason because she says when you open the box and Claire, mm-hmm. you know, interesting. This is like one of the sort of half truths, literally a half truth because Clara says there's a button inside that when mm-hmm. you press it will, you know, do this thing to the Zygons. 
but she doesn't tell her about the other button. Right. Like right. she doesn't lie. There is a button that will do that. Right. You know, well, I mean, I guess it is a lie because it ends up not doing it. But I also wonder how much Clara actually knew. Like was it was Clara just going on faith of what the doctor had told her the button would do? Right, right. Because because Bonnie didn't detect a lie in that. Right. So I suddenly so, thought of George Costanza. It's not a lie if you believe it. You know, like Right. Well, like maybe she's she has enough information in order to give Bonnie a convincing enough story. But and, is it but not enough that she's telling an outright lie. Yeah, um, like maybe maybe she like maybe you know, maybe it's like the you know, like she tried early on to be like well, I can't give you the the key because right. you are it, ha ha ha. And yeah. but like Bonnie figures that out. But like with this one, why would Bonnie have any reason to think that there would be a second button in there? Right. So right. Clara doesn't lie, but she doesn't tell but maybe Clara doesn't even know. Like has Clara actually seen the inside of the box? Or maybe she's just going on intelligence that the doctor gave her. Right. Um right. so maybe like and does Clara know that the button doesn't work? Like, right. Again, maybe she's just like, it's not like the button's been pressed. Like, otherwise, all the Zygons would be dead, or they would all be, uh, you know, revealed. Like, right. And neither of those things have happened. So, look, nobody's pressed the button. Maybe she's just assuming the yeah. doctor's right and right. doing that. Or does right. Clara actually know what? Yeah, something that, that a, something that occurred to me, and I don't think there's an answer for it necessarily, but one thing that interests me is this idea of like the memory wipe and the fact mm. that we've done this many times and and yes. memories have been wiped, but that this time they don't wipe Bonnie's memory, which seems to be the first time that that's true. Um, and so, okay, so what's different? What's changed? What makes the doctor think that she's you know? had enough of an epiphany, I guess, uh, to use Angel's word, that they don't need to do the memory wipe. And one thing that I thought of was like, well, maybe the other times she has decided not to press the button, but maybe the difference this time is that she realizes that the buttons don't do anything. It's that idea of like, you know, why do you know that? Because you've started to think like the doctor. Like there's an actual, it's not just okay, I've been talked out of it. But there's an actual progression of thought of, I actually realize where the doctor's coming from and understand how he's thinking a little bit. Um, so that kind of, that would support that theory of maybe Clara doesn't know because they never got that far before, you know? Maybe they only ever got to the, okay, stalemate, everybody puts the boxes away and we agree not to do anything. But maybe what we're seeing is the first time that we're actually moving beyond that into this idea of this is all actually kind of a dummy system set up by the doctor and it doesn't really do anything. Um, I don't know. I can't prove that. But that was yeah. one theory that I sort of had. Um, and, yeah. and I think that would that would maybe explain Clara's sort of, you know, maybe not having the full picture um, of, you know, if she had only, you know, maybe didn't know the full extent of what the boxes did or didn't do. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, I think that's plausible. Like, 
again, like I like you said, I don't know that we have enough information one way or the other to really make mm-hmm. the call, but um that's a a plausible explanation. Yeah. Um I think uh you know, one other thought I had just about the whole like, you know, Bonnie being able to read whether she's telling the truth or not. Like we we sort of take that at face value, but you, I, I know you were kind of joking about the Costanza thing, but at the same <laughs> time, you know, people people beat lie detector tests. Like, sure, yeah. You know, there are ways, and and that essentially does the same thing. It reads blood pressure and sweat levels, and you know, mm-hmm. like different physiological reactions, which is basically all that Bonnie is reading. Yeah. Uh, just because Bonnie can read Clara's physiological reaction doesn't necessarily mean she knows how to interpret it. Right. You know, she can tell that her heart is quickening, but is it quickening because Clara's telling a lie or is it quickening because Clara knows the doctor's coming and going to rescue her? Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, right. or, you know, maybe, maybe it is a confidence thing. And so if you say it with enough confidence and maybe mm-hmm. after trying it out a few times, Clara hits that magic Right. Hey, I'm yeah. confident enough with this lie that I right. Can go she on. says she's a brilliant liar, um, so maybe we can just believe her that she yeah. is. So, um, so maybe there's a couple different ways that you could sort of yeah believe that she either fooled Bonnie or was ignorant of in her own self. Maybe you know for different reasons because the doctor told her one thing and she just trusted the doctor what he said or because her memory had been wiped previously or, you know, whatever yeah. there's um, any number of explanations there. But yeah, I think, um, you know, with the box anyway, like clearly uh, Bonnie is surprised when she gets to it. And so mm-hmm. um, again, like, I don't know, maybe there was a different iteration of the box previously. Um like, do we know that, like, it was always truth to consequences? Right. And, like, maybe for some reason the doctor switched it out this time around. Maybe right, right. there was a different phrase last time or, you know, whatever. Um, I like the idea, though, of the buttons, truth and consequences, because I kind of feel like if you think about it, you know which one does what. Even though, I mean, ultimately right. neither one does what does anything but you have either truth which is revealing the zygons Mm -hmm. right or you have consequences which is killing Mm -hmm. the zygons so uh you know you could sort of inter like i can understand why in the heat of the moment maybe nobody's thinking about it that way and and whatever but um i do kind of feel like that's that's a good you know sort of way to 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 kind of like give a hint uh, mm-hmm. as to which one may might do what, um, yeah, yeah. But they but they don't get there, fortunately, right? right. Um, and uh, so just thought of another option. The buttons really do do something, and the doctor is the one who's lying <laughs> when he says that they don't do anything, right. and he yeah. just manages to talk them out of pressing it. Um, we can't. Prove it wrong. Yeah, we, so, we, yeah. we don't know if that's potentially another option. Yeah. Um, As he but, says, there are safeguards upon safeguards, you know, of, 
you know, (laughs) how, how convoluted can I make this to force people to think about what they're doing rather than just do it? You know, like how many different roadblocks can we set up in order to force people to actually think about their actions? Seems to me like, and any of those things could potentially be true because the point of it, like he says, is to just get people to talk, um, you know, and so who knows what they really do or if they do anything at all. Um, who knows if he's telling the truth about anything? Um, because I think that's not that that's unimportant, but that's obviously the whole point is to not get there is to avoid the actual pressing of the buttons and everything. Um, you know, and, and you said like, you like how it calls back to the day of the doctor. Like I even like how, just that kind of mythic repetition of ideas of it's a box again. And they even kind of look like the moment and just this idea of, of the scale model of war of when it comes down to it, whether it's the time war or it's this war or anything else, it's, you know, these boxes with the buttons are like a metaphor for the act of warfare. Um, and can kind of be applied to any situation. Um, And you think you know which is which, but do you really, you know, and you think you know which is the right button and you feel right in pushing it. Um, But what will really happen if you do, you don't know until you actually press it. Um, So I feel like as a kind of like, I don't know, miniaturization of that idea that really works. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I do want to make sure we take a couple minutes to talk about like the doctor's speech as well. Um, because I, I think I said this a few minutes ago, I feel like if, if, if you weren't convinced of, you know, Capaldi as, as an actor and the doctor before this, I hope this would do it. You know, um, I feel like, you know, he's given a lot of really good material this season, but this is a standout for me, you know, that he can really, he carries that 10 minute monologue and you, you don't even really realize, you know, uh, it doesn't feel it. He carries it so interestingly, like he finds, interesting ways to yell at people and like, (laughs) you know, so it doesn't just feel like a really boring lecture, you know, I'm not saying that that means the doctor is beyond criticism, but like as an actor, you know, I think Capaldi just nails it. Um, So, and I also want to say, I think it's easy then to give all the credit to him and to not realize what Jenna Coleman is doing that, because she doesn't get as many lines, you it's easy to not realize how great she is. And, you know, as both Clara and Bonnie and the way that she's, you know, non-verbally, you know, reacting to him and Bonnie's kind of evolution over the course with like no lines at all. Like just the way that she's silently changing over the course of the scene, I think is really fantastic. So. Yeah. No, I definitely agree that, um, you know, I think, and, and again, I think 
more the second time through is I noticed that not well I don't know I I noticed Clara like some of her expressions the first time through but like Mm -hmm. I think I was more just sort of absorbed in like trying to remember everything the doctor was actually saying right uh you know um so like the second time through when I sort of had the gist of you know the thrust of his speech um there like you, you you sort of noticed uh Clara's um you know, expressions and, and sort of her reactions to mm-hmm. what he's saying there. Um, and, and that sort of, I mean, I feel like we're getting here, uh, you know, a lot of, I mean, obviously Clara was around for Day of the Doctor mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. But she's only getting a limited view of it. And mm-hmm. so, and I, and like the doctor's not much of like, hey, let's sit down and reminisce. Remember that day when like <laughs> right. I met two of my other selves and, you yeah. know, we went off and like saved the universe. And, yeah, and, yeah. You know, um, like I don't feel like she's gotten a whole picture of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I mean, this might be a bold statement. Um, uh oh. But I think. I don't know that we get as clear and emotional, which I is not a word that I like equate with Capaldi per se. Right. Um, okay. As clear and emotional a description of the time war and uh, its effect on him as he gives in this particular mm. scene. I say that hesitantly because like, I'm like, maybe I'm forgetting something with like Tennant or even, you know, like as far back as Eccleston. Like, I I feel like we get, but I feel like with a lot of their performances, we don't get explanation. We get hints and references and, and emotive hints and references, but, but not like, you know, the sort of thing where he says here, like, you know, I, I, I said never again, like, you know, this is like, will never happen to someone. And, and sort of his explanation of how bad for, (laughs) if I can use a completely inadequate word, (laughs) you know, how bad he feels at, at, you know, these emotions and stuff. And, and just that idea of, he's willing to go as far as he possibly can so that nobody else ever will. Um, So how's this for a distinction? I think you're right about like there have been emotional and emotive moments where he kind of skirts around the issue, but maybe this is the most honest that we've seen the character talk about the time war. You know, and and emotion is part of that, like emotionally honest about it, like, but sure. but just open about exactly what he felt and why he did what he did, and and you know, both kind of from the the you know more the self righteous kind of thing of I know best and I'm gonna tell you what the right thing is but also from the kind of self-deprecating thing of 
I know because I was where you are and I know exactly how you're feeling and and I know why you're doing what you're doing. Like, I think that's part of it too, is he can absolutely understand where Bonnie is coming from, you know, and that's what makes his argument so convincing. I think like when, you know, her thing about, you know, you don't understand, well, you know, obviously that, you know, he says, you know, are you kidding? Of course I understand. Like he's the character in the show that would most understand. And that's why right. he can understand her. Um, you know, to me, one of the most powerful lines is maybe the most powerful line is, you know, when she starts to realize this is a bad call, but I've committed myself and I can't go back now. And, you know, they'll never, you know, I'll never be able to, you know, they'll never let me go after this. And, you know, his thing about, you know, you're all the same. Look at me. I'm unforgivable. But here's the unforeseeable. I forgive you. Like, I don't know why that just, I find that very, a very moving, sorry, my radiator is totally destroying the pathos of what I'm trying to say. But... <laughs> I find that a very moving line, you know, um, you know, and it's that thing of the doctor of he's mocking her, you know, in a way, oh, you whiny kid, look at me, I'm unforgivable, I'm unforgivable, but again, he's said those same things, you know, he's that self-deprecation as well, you know, um, like, I feel like I can't think of an example, but I feel like we've heard the doctor say stuff like that of like, you know, that's that Time Lord Victorious attitude of, well, sure. I'm going to be the baddest guy ever and do and I'm beyond redemption. So nothing I do matters. So I'll just do whatever I want and all that kind of thing. You know, he's, you know, if he's kind of mocking her, I think he's also mocking his own attitudes um, because he's been in that position, but he's also in the position to forgive, especially, you know, if, if that's the thing, which is causing her, she's having second doubts, there's having second thoughts. And, you know, what she needs to hear is that she can be forgiven and redeemed and, you know, and he's willing to extend that to her. Um, you know, which is that whole idea of like breaking the cycle. Somebody has to forgive. Um, sure. You know, and he's happy to be the first one. Somebody has to be the first one to say, I will forgive you and not, you know, you know, force punishment on you for what you've done so that you don't go on and do it to somebody else. Um, sure. Yeah, no, I agree. That moment of him saying, I forgive you is definitely powerful. And I mean, I think like in a way, like I don't know that it's objectively true, but sort of subjectively, it has to be someone who's done worse things, right? Like mm -hmm. um, it's, it's almost maybe, I mean, this 
it's in the same direction as, but maybe not as extreme as extreme as, you know, the scene of, you know, goodwill hunting of, you know, Robin Williams saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You know, it's not your fault. Like that's, you know, emotionally, that's maybe way more like sobby, but um, if, if I can use that as a word, but you know, like, you know, this, I think sort of leans in that similar direction of, like it has to be someone who for one reason or another you respect and 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 why do you respect them one because they sort of put you in your place <laughs> and mm-hmm. also because they demonstrate that yeah actually you know like you said you, you know they do know what's going on um and yeah. that that whole you know again going back to his whole you know I fought in a bigger war than you ever will I did worse things than you could ever imagine um, and when I close my eyes, I hear more screams than anyone could ever be able to count. And, you know, and actually connection to Angel, because that's how Angel describes his experience, right? Of having a soul, of being able to remember mm. all the people he's sort of tortured or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm saying the doctor tortured people, but he certainly is responsible for their deaths and hears right. these screams. And, you know, again, sort of like, thinking of like the mythology of the doctor, like, and the capacity of his mind and memory and recall, like you almost have to think like, that's probably even worse. Like, you know, talk about PTSD. Like, yeah, this is, you know, probably like worse than even, I don't mean to make light of it. You know, it's a serious condition and people suffer from it. But like, if you're thinking of that on sort of like a galactic scale, Right. Uh, you know, like just the fact that he experiences this, like probably is worse than, you know, if it's from a bigger war and if he did worse things than anyone could imagine and he hears these screams and he has sort of like perfect recall and memory <laughs> then right. like, and, 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 you know, millennia long lifespan and, you know, right, right. Like, right. Like how, like we're, you know, I'm just thinking of Day of the Doctor stuff, but there's probably, you know, there's Time War, there's, you know, right. all of this. Well, I mean, Day of the Doctor was like Time War related, but you know what I mean. Sure, sure. Um, so there's there's all these different things. And then for him to say that he, you, you know, what does he do with it? He holds it so tight that it burns his hand and says no one else will have to ever live like this to then then go from that. um, Or actually he goes from the forgive you, I think right Mm -hmm. into that. Like that's, it's, it's that, that thing of like, okay, look, I forgive you. And here are all my qualifications for being able to do that. (laughs) Like, um, yeah. In case you think I don't understand what that means. Let me show you that I know exactly what I'm talking about. And so this comes from a educated opinion. Um, um, and I, I want to point out, too, that he's obviously talking to uh, Bonnie at this mm-hmm. point. But it's not till after he gives all that that Kate steps back, too. Right. Like, like she is still right there ready to press a button. Yeah. Um. And the doctor doesn't explicitly like say, I forgive you to her. Right. Uh, he does say thank you when she sort of steps back. Yeah. 
um, and apologizes. But, you know, she, like, she's right there the whole time, too, like, ready to push that button. And it's Mm -hmm. not until she sort of realizes and remembers. And, like, almost for her, like, you almost feel like she should know better because she knows the doctor, you know, better. But, you know, it's not until she sort of forces herself to remember or or the doctor sort of forces her to remember like who he really is Mm -hmm. that like even she you know uh doesn't doesn't pull back so you could almost forgive someone human or zygon or whatever for not knowing that uh up front as well either but anyway yeah um I do want to talk to a little bit. I know we're kind of at or over our time here, but um, I do want to talk a few minutes about the whole you young whippersnapper aspect <laughs> of this. Um, yeah. Because on the one hand, like there is, there is a sense, and I don't know that we're necessarily meant to know the ages of the Zygons themselves, or even mm-hmm. whether, even if we knew what ages they were, like if that would me- make any difference relatively, like, you know, is this like a Hobbit thing where you're like yeah, a tween when you're 30 something? Right. You know? <laughs> um, right. What's the Zygon to human year ratio? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so I don't, you know, we don't necessarily know there, but, but he does like, you do sort of get a sense that like, like maybe Clara is an appropriate form. Like maybe she's a similar age as Clara okay. sort of relatively. Right. Um, at least the way the doctor talks to her, sure. <laughs> you get, you get whether that's true or not. Right. Right. You know, the way the doctor talks to her is, seems to be that way. Um, but he talks about her like having, like, this is a tantrum, right? This is a, uh, you know, I, I deserve something. Mm. Um, it actually reminded me of um, there's a Mark Twain quote, and I I, I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right, but something along the lines of like you know, don't ask, you know, don't tell the world that you deserve whatever you know it was here first, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like the world yeah, yeah. owes you nothing. Like, right. and that's kind of the doctor here. Like he's he's saying, okay, you know, you feel like you're owed something or that you know, you've been on your own, but everybody's on their own. Like, that's how everyone lives all the time, which yeah. is, you know, that sort of existential thing that Joss Whedon likes to do as well. Um, right. And it's not, it's not about, like, how much you've been sort of, or how much you think you've been, uh, you know, I don't, whatever, you know, treated yeah. unfairly. Right. Um you know, and, and he, he makes like, you know, my TARDIS doesn't work properly. I don't have my own personal tailor. Like, and right. she's like, well, those things aren't right. the same thing. And it's like, right. well, but they kind of are, um, at least in his view. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe, you know, you could scale and say, okay, yes, not having your own personal tailor isn't quite the same as, you know, being forced to live on a planet sort of in hiding. Right, or, right. Or, or passing, as you, you know, said earlier, but, you know, the same token, like there isn't, you know, it's not like when you're born, you make a contract of fairness with the earth, right? Or right. the universe or whatever. It, 
it's not it's never an excuse to treat people uh you know in a way that is unfair to them as well yeah because like like you know i said from the beginning like one of my complaints with uh bonnie is even if she sort of has a good point or you know a good kernel from which she's Mm -hmm. starting like she goes too far when she makes decisions for other people Mm um and you know okay and you know not to mention the fact that it can lead to war like i mean that that's bad too but like just even even like say it didn't lead to war like Mm -hmm. You used the example earlier of like, you know, someone passing uh, or maybe someone who, you, you know, if, uh, from like an LGBT perspective, like someone who is in the closet per se. And, right. you know, like it's not someone else's job to determine when they come out of that closet. Like right. if they're willing and want to, for whatever reason, right. whether it's out of fear or some other motivation, like it's ultimately their decision to be the ones to make that choice about and, and to whom they make that choice about who they tell. And so, you know, you might eventually over time get Zygons feeling more comfortable in revealing their real selves or whatever. Or again, they might for whatever reason be, you know, prefer to keep that to themselves and not reveal it. And that's, that's ultimately their choice, not, bonnie's um so i feel like that that metaphor sort of works on that level too that yeah that even if even if you take the war aspect out of it you know the the fear and the repercussions of you know maybe being attacked for being aliens or whatever like it's still not the right thing to do Mm -hmm. like it still should be someone's you know some individual zygons personal uh decision whether or not to do that um right so yeah i i I, you know i guess uh you know for the for the doctor you know this i guess one of the other things that occurred to me is that all right how to say this so i'm i'm on the cusp of (laughs) generation x and generation y like I, I, I'm, I'm a late Gen Xer, but by some measures I could be placed in Generation Y. And also like I have two brothers who are like seven and nine years younger than me who are solidly millennials. And, and uh-huh. uh, you know, so I feel through my affinity there and, and you know, having a number of younger friends, including yourself, uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, I do to some yeah. degree at least understand the millennial uh, perspective yes. more so than than maybe those yeah. who are even in the same Gen X generation as me, but you know maybe a yeah. few years older. There are often yeah. complaints about millennials that are very similar to what the doctor is sort of saying here about Bonnie, um, mm-hmm. about being whiny and feeling like they deserve things that maybe they don't actually deserve and that kind of thing. So right. I was curious, one, if you thought along that same line to just, you know, if you, if, if, 
it gave you that same sort of sense like maybe like this is uh the the writer's uh sort of um inclusion of that kind of argument here like hey millennials uh-huh. you don't deserve you <laughs> right. know <laughs> everything uh, but i also feel like i mean this version of doctor who is very geared toward millennials generally so i don't know right. that like right. i necessarily buy that right. it just is something i thought yeah. of uh, which may you know maybe ultimately says more about me than the you know no i think uh, that's interesting um that's interesting that I have to say that hadn't occurred to me. Um, and which I find interesting because normally as a millennial, I am quite sensitive to that kind of thing and do think that, um, we are often given a very, uh, bad rap by, um, you know, older generations, but particularly in the media, I think there's this narrative, this kind of, meta perception of the you know entitled millennial which is not in my experience very accurate to people i know um i don't know i find you, know. you pretty entitled pat <laughs> oh man it's infuriating um yeah and i get really like up in arms about it um but uh i don't know i didn't feel like I can see how you could read it that way, but I didn't feel like the line about, like when he says, you're all the same, you you kids, I didn't feel like he was saying kids to mean you young people. I, I took the kids to be a kind of reference to these tantrumy, you know, baddies in quotes that he runs into who are you know, the ones he says about, oh, look at me, I'm unforgivable, and I'm so irredeemable that I can't change my mind. And if if the plan that I've set in motion is, you know, doomed, well, it's too late to turn back. I felt like that's who he's talking to in that moment, is, like, you kids are, are you, you know, uh, you know, people who maybe fancy themselves revolutionary and, you know, are kind of, you know, maybe showing a bit of whiny entitlement that they haven't necessarily earned or thought through. Um, I felt like that's who he was addressing. I didn't feel talked down to as a young person that, you know, you know, young people are whiny and entitled. So, um, and I'm kind of with you. I feel like that would go against the kind of spirit of the show. Um, I'd be, I would, that would find that really weird if that's the position they were having the doctor take. Um, because it seems like the doctor is on the side of the youth in general. Um, and I think he's revolutionary. I think he's on the side of, you know, kind of, he's the one who comes and throws the oppressors out of, you know, he frees people from oppression generally. So I don't think he's like anti, you know, progress or revolution at all. Um, I feel like it's more, he's addressing Bonnie and the people like her who, you know, 
label themselves revolutionaries, but like he says, are just replicating the cruelties that have been done to them in the name of, you know, whatever cause they want to call it. Um, so that was sort of my reading. Um, yeah. Fair enough. And <laughs> I mean, you know, given the doctor's view of time, like. Yeah, everybody's it, it, a, a young yeah, whippersnapper to him. Well, not not even that, but just like I, I was thinking more along the lines of like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Like, like right. every generation has their children. Like he's not necessarily just saying yeah. millennials, but that like there's children in no matter what time period you go through. And, so we, and, and that being childishness, not necessarily related to your age at all, you know, sure. Fair like enough. he, you know, that these are, you know, childishness in the kind of, negative sense of immature and tantrumy not necessarily that it's you young people that are you know that are the cause of all these problems um that's yeah, yeah that was more how i uh i didn't necessarily take it as having any relationship to you know bonnie's age or anything yeah um yeah, because who's to say how old Bonnie is? We don't really, I don't yeah, again, know. So. Again, we don't know. And we don't know if, again, I mean, I was just sort of suggesting that maybe, relatively mm -hmm. speaking, she's equivalent to, to Clara's age. But I, that's just a guess. I don't have yeah, any sure. reason to back that up. Um, so, all right. Well, I feel like we've adequately... Yeah. Uh, talked um, to make up for the shortness of last week's discussion about the sure. first half. Um, we sort of made I'm, up for it. This I'm one. glad that yeah. we did because I do like this two-parter, although I feel like part one is a lot of necessary setup for what, you know, to leave room for the emotional impact of part two. So I don't dislike part one at all, but I feel like I'm glad we spent more time on this one. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was good. But we should move on to Angel now. We should. And, you know, uh, just seeing how the, you know, again, once again, this these two episodes sort of match up thematically. Yeah, really uh, well. In some ways. So, uh, yeah. Where... No, and I wasn't really watching, realizing that as I was watching them. It's sort of as we were looking at our notes and thinking and talking about how to talk about the episodes that I kind of like, they are both about choices and characters changing their mind and having an epiphany and moving away from, you know, choices which lead them down a dark path into, um, you know, choosing the good. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I wanted to start with uh, Angel I, I kind of want to talk about Angel throughout, obviously, but um, we might as well start kind of where it picks up with his, you know, the continuation off of the cliffhanger. And they kind of fake you out still where they kind of uh, replicate, you know, is it the, I forget if it's the end of uh, Surprise or the beginning of Innocence where 
you know, you have him waking up in the bed gasping and then he gets up and he runs outside, you know, it's like the exact same scene basically. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're really set up for this, you know, and even Darla is fooled of like, you know, she comes out all smug, like, you know, ah, oh, yes, let it happen. You know, like she's sort of like easing him through it and, you know, perfectly convinced that, you know, uh, he's, you know, waking up as Angelus and everything. Um, right. Which obviously is inverted or subverted, I guess. Um, that's not uh, what happens. Um, which uh, we've talked about the possibility that, you know, the, the perfect bliss or happiness isn't necessarily related to any particular physical act. It has more to do with a contentment of, you know, the soul maybe. Um, and so Darla's sort of offended that, you know, you know, her, they're having sex doesn't, you know, didn't seem to do the trick. And she like wants to go again because it's sort of like, you know, a mark against her that it, it wasn't good enough or something. Um, whereas Angel explains it, it has nothing to do with, you know, your technique. It, it was, you know, he says it was perfect, but it was perfect despair that, you know, right. it wasn't, it can't be, it can't work because it wasn't happy. You know, it was something done out of, you know, bleakness and, you know, uh, you know, there wasn't that kind of contentment that he felt with Buffy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, giving us more information than we had before about why, you know, what yeah. things might cause him to, you know, turn into Angelus again that, you know, there's more nuance to it and it's a little bit more unpredictable than we might've realized. Yeah. Where, whereas we sort of could conjecture before now we've got some hard data to go by. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I, you mentioned inversion. I, I do want to talk to um, a little bit more about sort of um the the references there too because um so it's at the end of surprise and then the beginning of innocence like you said like the end of surprise you get angel waking up and sort of going out into the rain and like falling to the ground and then it's at the beginning of innocence where you sort of see him yeah. come back in and yeah. he's he's you know changed um mm -hmm. but i but there's so there's also some parallels between buffy and darla here because um and and I have to believe explicit uh, because of mm -hmm. the closeness of the dialogue at in innocence um, you get um, Buffy you know when when Angel come or Angelus at this point comes in and sort of is like uh, you know it's Buffy's first time and he's sort of giving her the eh, it was okay and right. and and Buffy goes I don't understand was it me. Was mm -hmm. I not good? Um, here in Epiphany, you get Darla saying, um, you're not evil. I don't understand. Was I, was it not good? So mm -hmm. you're getting that sort of, you know, again, it's like very similar wording. Right, um, right. But, but completely different context of 
you know, uh, two women who want completely opposite things, right? Buffy's looking for like the, oh, this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship and whatever. Right, right. Well, I guess it's not so different. Darla wants it to be the beginning of a relationship too. <laughs> Maybe beautiful is not different the, kind quite of relationship, the, the yeah. right word, but yeah, you know, but that that right. They're of, both disappointed that it didn't, you know, yeah. go the way it didn't fulfill this relationship in the way they thought it would. And, and maybe even that idea of like, you know, um, the woman who believes that she can change the man kind of thing of, you know, like, right. oh, if I just do this thing, then he'll be the way that yeah. I want him. If, if I change myself or if I do what he wants. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, I can, I can make him into the kind of, you know, man I know he can be, whether that's Buffy turning him good or, you know, Darla turning him evil. Um, yeah. They both kind of want to think they ha- can have this effect on him. Um, Although weirdly, they have kind of the opposite. Each of them goes the opposite way than they, right. you know, well, that's he's, he's sort of Buffy turns him evil and Darla kind of gives him this moment of clarity. <laughs> so right. in both cases, it sort of right. goes the exact opposite of the way they want it to go. Right. Darla sort of renews his, uh, you know, um, <laughs> his mission to do right, good right. kind of and, right. and to redeem himself um yeah. but yeah uh so yeah no i mean i just you know okay maybe that's that's just sort of the one line of dialogue but um you know darla's well and and the difference too that like buffy had no idea what might happen whereas darla right. obviously right. knows and and is trying to get that effect. Um, so, yeah, I don't, you know, I, maybe we don't need to dwell too much longer on there, but you, you picked up exactly on the other piece. And I want to make sure we talked about it, which is the perfect despair, the, you mm-hmm. know, that idea of this was not a happy act for Angel. It, and, and which, right. I mean, he was violent you know, in, in Mm -hmm. the last, at the end of the last episode, like this wasn't, this wasn't a, you know, making love kind of situation, (laughs) you know, that, that Buffy and Angel had had, um, in surprise. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely kind of pisses Darla off a little bit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. She Um, takes it very personally. Um, yeah, and even his kind of, um, I've, I'm searching for what word I want. Um, the way he, indifference afterwards, you know, of like, you know, he says, there's nothing I can do for you. I can't even hate you. Um, and he yeah. just sort of says, like, you know, you can let yourself out. You know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not really angry. You know, if we meet again, I probably will have to kill you because that's the right thing to do. But it's not personal. It's just what I have to do. Like, he just has this kind of all of a sudden after, you know, the kind of passionate, you know, relationship they had before. And then the kind of like passionate hatred he had of I'm it's my mission in life to take you down. Now, mm-hmm. it's just this sort of, you know kind of zen attitude of whatever happens happens you know 
we're not, we're enemies, but I don't feel this personal mission against you. And, you know, uh, I think that's maybe as offensive as anything else, you know, like, sure. And you know, it, it, he, she can't even get a emotional, you know, hateful response out of him. It's just sort of, you know, kind of whatever. And yeah, that's interesting because to, you know, there's also, um, there's also that sense of, you know, Darla is, sort of blaming him like she says you made me trust you you made me believe mm. um you know you knew this would happen and all of that uh which is you know again so okay it, it's that thing of you know believing the guy will say whatever he has to say to get in the woman's pants yeah. right like right right uh but of course that wasn't the way like darla has been trying to have this like darla was the one trying to get into his pants you know all right, along right. and and i think you know part of it has to do with the shift in their power dynamic because from the beginning darla you know darla made angelus right like she's mm -hmm. the one who took liam into the alley and you yeah. know made him a vampire and and so um and all along, like, we, we see that, like, you know, for as frilly as some of her dresses are, she wears the pants in the relationship, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Like, like she's the one who kind of has Angelus wrapped around her finger. And even, like, you know, there's the barn scene where it's like, okay, that was great. Now I'm going to leave you in this burning building and right, go, she go, make, him, go yeah. make my escape. You know, which is ultimately you know sort of leaving him to do his thing is what gets him cursed in right, the long, right. you know in the end anyway so so there's the sense that now like she's trying like she wants to be responsible for him becoming a vamp a full vampire again mm -hmm. and i mean may like i don't know that we get a definitive statement here but maybe part of that is to sort of restore that dynamic of i made you and and you're yeah. sort of beholden to me in that way. And yeah. and so some of that pain and anger that she feels is maybe, you know, just like you pointed out, like there is this indifference now. So that power dynamic, not only is that power dynamic gone, like there's no chance of it coming back. Like if there right. was any chance, this was it. And clearly it didn't work. So yeah. And there is, know, um... that's not even an option anymore. And I think I would say that that's probably what makes her seem so despondent in sort of the next time we see her with Lindsay mm -hmm. um, in his apartment there. Just that, like, now she has no idea what to do with herself. Like, right, right. Ever since she ever since she came back, you know, was brought back by Wolfram and Hart. This has been her goal to turn angel. And not only has it failed spectacularly but now she like you know it just occurred to me as i was saying this like she kind of has an epiphany there too not mm -hmm. a good epiphany but an epiphany of yeah i like this is never going to happen like there, there's mm -hmm. just no way that i can get him you know to be who i want him to be kind of thing. so there yeah. there is a sense where she also sort of has a revelation there yeah um, and I wanted to point out the line, which I think kind of supports that idea of, uh, 
you know, when she said, like she said, I was going to kill you, take you out of this world the same way I brought you into it, but I didn't have to. You gave yourself mm-hmm. over so completely, Angelus. I felt you surrender. So there's that thing of like, she's reveling in this idea of him, you know, surrendering power to her to maybe restore that kind of power dynamic that they used to have. Um, but yeah, and the kind of, she's disturbed by it, you know, Lindsay says what happened and she says nothing happened my god nothing at all like that idea of mm-hmm. she's ineffectual you know um she kind of played her trump card and you know it had absolutely no effect on him so you know she's yeah. sort of out of moves um sure yes well in more than one sense. Um, <laughs> so. Right. I wanted to, uh, while we're on the topic of Darla, maybe finish up with like the angel Darla Lindsay dynamic, which is this kind of weird little love triangle, you know, of, you know, or despair triangle of yeah. some sort of like. Or Lindsay imagines that there's some sort of love triangle that he's a part of, which is like kind of in his own mind, I think. Um, You know, he he obviously feels this. It's starting to get a little sad for Lindsay, I think. Like he's feeling this um, attraction and protectiveness and draw towards Darla that she doesn't really seem to reciprocate. She kind of uses him for a couch. you know, and uh, doesn't really seem inclined to kind of go there with him other than what she needs him for. And, you know, but but she'll kind of say like, oh, you know, hint at things that might have gone on between her and Angel so that Lindsay gets all jealous and riled up and, you know, goes and beats him up with his car and, you know, his sledgehammer and everything. Um, right. You know, uh you know, and then again, like, Angel kind of, you know, kicks his butt enough to give him the message, but doesn't care enough to, like, kill him or, you know, he's had his epiphany, so I'll just break your prosthetic hand and leave it at that. Um, You know, Lindsay can't really get that much of a rise out of him either. Um, So, yeah, Lindsay's kind of getting... There's something... It hadn't occurred to me, but there's some sort of parallel there to Spike, maybe, of, like, you know, mm. Lindsay's kind of living in a slightly different world than everybody else, as far as what he thinks is really going on with these relationships and everything. Um, sure. I don't know whether you yeah, uh, agree I with think... that or not, but um, he seems to feel much more passionately about either of them than either of them really cared about him. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. I think, um, so with respect to Darla, um, Lindsay, uh, it's that, it's that nice guy attitude, right. Of, you know, I brought you in. I've earned it. Yeah. I took you in and I, I nursed yeah. you back to health and, oh, why don't I move your stuff into the bedroom? <laughs> like <laughs> like yeah. that sort of presumptuousness yeah. and uh, 
yeah expectation on his part is yeah. definitely um undeserved because like anyone who is looking at it objectively knows like darla has no interest in him that she's mm-hmm. you know clearly using him for whatever um and we don't really know i mean yeah like you said like for for a couch and like a place to stay like but she can find those things on her own like i don't think she necessarily right. needs to use no, them. it's just no, convenient no. for her yeah. Um, yeah until it becomes troublesome until uh, you know it she realizes and uh uh you know Lindsay discovers at the end that hey yeah. maybe maybe this is becoming not convenient anymore mm-hmm. um so you know she moves out uh so yeah i definitely think that um Lindsay, I don't, I mean, it's hard to say if he believes there's a relationship there or if he just thinks that, like, one could develop if he just continues to sort of do what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, he's got more of an emotional involvement than, like, he ought to, than he deserves to <laughs> at yeah. this point. Um, and, and, like, especially, like, like, his going to attack angel i mean you know makes no rational sense because like why you know there isn't anything between him and darla and why Mm -hmm. would why would anything that she does with someone else like be any of his business to begin with and what makes him think that he has the right to demand to know what happened between them like there there are all these sort of uh pieces to it that just there's no again rational reason now i'm not saying he's being rational he's clearly not so there are plenty of irrational reasons i guess but um you know none of them make sense when you step back and look at him and i think maybe by the end he sort of comes to realize that at least sort of on a superficial basis maybe he doesn't feel it but he sort of Mm -hmm. knows it to be true um yeah but I don't, you know, I think that's where he definitely is for most of this episode is in that state of mind. So Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I think Angel is just like simply an obstacle in that, you know, he's, for whatever reason, he's the, you know, I think Lindsay imagines that, you know, maybe Angel is the thing that which is preventing something from developing. Um you know, which if he all if he didn't hate him enough already, you know, obviously kind of puts him over the edge. Um, right. Sure. So. Uh, okay, so next angel, uh, after he kind of realizes he does care about people and wants to help them, he remembers that you know, Kate was calling him. You know, in you know, kind of a state. Um, and he goes to help her um, mm-hmm. and catches her in time and, you know, gets her, you know, in the shower and everything to sort of recover from her overdose. Um, so, I mean, there's not too much to say because they just have a short little scene and then they come back at the end. Um, but it's important what happens for, you know, a couple reasons. One, 
you know, at first Kate is sort of, you know, very curt, you know, the thanks, now get out. Um, but by the end, she kind of does express her gratitude that she actually does want to live. And so she appreciates that Angel came and that she didn't actually even think that he would. So it's sort of, you know, impressed that he did come for her. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I also wanted to mention the, uh, the thing she says um, about her never inviting him in. Um, and there's this kind of suggestion of, you know, some sort of, you know, I don't know whether you want to call it like divine intervention or, you know, luck or whatever you want to, you know, whatever kind of Tolkienian word you want to call it um, of, you know, he shouldn't have been able to get in there, but he did. And so, you know, there's something, somebody's watching out for them, I guess is the idea. Um, yeah. And whether that's, that's somebody, something watching out for Angel and his work, or whether that's, you know, uh, for, for the, for Kate's, you know, sake and her salvation, you know, we're not, we don't really know. Um, there could be some other more rational explanation. We don't know. Kate seems to take the kind of, you know, faith option, you know, of, you know, yeah. there, we, we had a guardian angel today and, you know, something interfered on our behalf. And so maybe yeah. it's not quite as, you know, angel seems to, angels kind of like, well, nothing matters. So all that matters is what we do, which is a kind of positive response to a fairly bleak, you know, worldview. Whereas I feel like Kate wants to, you know, step away from the kind of emptiness of that and say, well, maybe there are good forces at work and, you know, there are higher powers that might give, you know, lend us a hand or something. Um, yeah. So she kind of takes a slightly different point of view than he does, I think. Sure. Um, yeah. And so two thoughts. One, like, I definitely agree. Kate takes the sort of faith route. And I mean, we know that there are higher powers. Maybe there are moments where they can uh, interfere or intervene, however you want to look at it. Um, mm -hmm. So there's another option, um, which is that we know when someone dies, their threshold is removed. So Mm. perhaps Kate was momentarily, you know, maybe what Angel did was to revive her. Um, now, I I don't think we have evidence, direct evidence against that, but I tend mm -hmm. to think, like, we don't see him doing, like, CPR, and he has no breath anyway, right? Like, right? like he couldn't, right, right. We, we already know this because he couldn't revive Buffy way back in season right. one of that right. show. Um, so, like, I don't, I would tend to say that's, not like I, I almost feel like we can rule that one out. So perhaps mm -hmm. we can we can sort of agree with Kate that there was some kind of intervention. Um Yeah. You know, at this point. But just just to say that that is like maybe and one other option that you could look at as to yeah, yeah. you know, maybe she was temporarily dead and in that moment 
right whatever but then in that case then how did she get revived again and is that a miracle or a intervention right. of some kind too so like right. one way or the other you almost kind of have to have some sort of external yeah. uh, force you know being uh intervening here and again like you know we know cordy gets these visions from higher powers and stuff so it's not like yeah uh, we know that that there are yeah yeah what, whatever they are, <laughs> what whatever those higher powers are, we know that there's something going on. Right, right. Yeah. No, and I feel like there's always, in any potentially miraculous situation, there's always potential rational explanations. So, I mean, I think that's true in the stories and probably in life, too. And, and people will, will disagree on, you know, which explanation you know, makes the most sense to them. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that Kate, after her kind of existential crisis of, you know, meaning and purpose, not only comes back feeling grateful for life, but comes back with like this kind of decidedly, you know, uh, I don't know, optimistic attitude towards higher you know not only is she grateful to have lived but suddenly she believes in higher powers and like you know from what she was saying before of um you know if i'm not a cop what meaning does my life have you know sure. she's certainly moved into a kind of you know there are there is good at work in the world and you know inherently i think then everything has meaning if you kind of take that philosophy so um definitely a big shift for her i think yeah and i i mean this is also someone who just had a near-death experience too so like sure sure you know yeah. is yeah. is yeah. everything that she says you know right like is that her belief for all time or is this her not necessarily? Her yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. 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 She may have had a little um, bit of a deathbed conversion and then, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's her fixed worldview for the rest of her life. Um, yeah. But I also well, think, I also think so, cause her comment is, you know, um, she she's sort of struggling too when she says you know that she has faith like it's you know I don't know what I believe but I have faith and it's almost that um, if we can switch real briefly over to a different Joss Whedon show it's um, mm -hmm. almost or actually the movie of Serenity um, where Shepard Book you know talks to Mal about faith and he says you know why why do you think I'm always talking about God when I say faith like it doesn't necessarily i'm not necessarily talking about a higher power mm -hmm. maybe it's just faith in each other faith in people faith in humanity mm -hmm. and then you know when shepherd book dies oh spoiler alert um you know he says i don't i don't care what you have faith in just have faith in something whatever it is and so yeah. you know there's also uh, you know Again, like, I don't know that we have enough evidence to know exactly what she's saying, but I do think that across uh, Whedon's works, a lot of his um, stories are about 
people coming together to do good things. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, so again, there's the, there's the threshold aspect and like clearly something maybe supernatural or magical happened. And, and within the context of the show, that's certainly possible, but uh, there's also the sense that maybe it's just about her saying we're, we are together. Like we're, she says, I think maybe we're not alone in this. And that's, literally true right in that moment because there's at least two of them sitting together right right, right like right. it's you know so like there, there's sort of right you're not alone and i'm not alone because we're yeah with there, each other yeah so there's sort of the dual aspect of that um you know where like i again i'm not necessarily saying she's not talking about like faith in a higher power either like she, right right she might be and and there's reason to think that she could be but i think like it doesn't have to be limited to that too. Like there could mm-hmm. be, you know, multiple layers there. Yes, um, definitely. So anyway, so I want, so since we're talking about that scene, cause it's right in that same, you know, sort of discussion um, where mm-hmm. Angel has his um, comment um, that you sort of mentioned before that all, you know, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. Um, mm. Just wanted to point out uh, a, couple years ago now um in the 2014 um winter olympics there was uh some uh and that was in sochi russia uh Mm -hmm. where that took place there was some um concern and and some protest uh about holding the games there because of russia's um legislation uh their anti-lgbt legislation um and um there was there was a decent amount of coverage of that and whatever um mm-hmm. and of course uh so the daily show got in on the action um and did uh they had a uh interviewer go over and talk with um some people he talked with like a bureaucrat and he talked with some people on the street and interestingly enough he talked with um one russian lady who uh he sort of asked her questions about you know um, the LGBT issues and whether he, th- whether she thought that Russia could change and whether, whether she was hopeful about it. And, and she says, I have to hope because otherwise it's too depressing. And then, um, she said, you know, I, uh, want to make sure that I look at me as my grandchildren and say, I did all I could. And then she quotes this show and this line uh, she <laughs> says there's a quote from an american tv show called angel that's a wonderful phrase that has a wonderful phrase if nothing we do matters then all that matters is what we do and it's a very heartwarming moment and the interviewer hugs her and and, and right. all that so but you know it's inter- it's it's always kind of funny to me because you know we talk about these shows and stuff and i mean i think there's a lot to get out of them but you don't think about them necessarily in the context of like big world political issues mm. and that kind of thing. And, and I think like, you know, this is, I, I, I like, I liked this quote even before I heard the old Russian lady say it, but I think the fact that like, just the fact that there's an old Russian lady who watches American TV and caught this and, and not only caught it, but like was able to put it in context of something that really matters to yeah. her like that. Yeah. That just seems like to embrace all of this sort of, poignancy of the moment and to like i'm almost tearing up here like myself like you know just that 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 you know ability to do that and and i think of like other 
moments, not just from like this show per se, but of, um, you know, like there were, uh, I, I believe in China, was it? Um, or an Asian country, man, I should probably have looked this up before I started talking about it, where, where they adopted the salute from the Hunger Games, you know, the three finger, mm. uh, you know, salute that Katniss gives and, and that, um, is so, so emotional more in, in the second, or, or, um, no, it's in the first movie, right? When you see like district uh, 11, uh, yeah, you know, with... give the salute and, and then like yeah, start yeah. the rioting and that, but then like right. that turned into like an actual, like, um, you, you know, thing that people are using in like parts of the world to like sort of demonstrate both solidarity, but also, you know, sort of uh, uh, going against the system of whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they're combating in their countries and that kind of thing. And, and I think it's easy to sort of say, oh, you know, hey, we do this weekly podcast because it's nice and it's fun to talk about the stories and whatever, but also that there's, you know, actual poignant things in these stories that can have a real impact because potentially I'm sure millions of people have seen that clip and maybe many of them have never seen angel, but I think you can take that sentiment of that line away and, and really, you know, uh, apply it to a lot of different situations. No, I mean, it kind of is a really great example of how, you know, art and stories have a very, practical effect on you know a a genuine you know material effect on the world you know that um yeah which i think we all anybody who loves stories probably believes that internally but you don't always see the like proof of it you know that we all kind of i think anybody who loves to you know read or watch stories understands the way it internally affects you but you, it's hard to see how it's internally affecting other people. It's just, it's more like an individual thing. Um, so then to see kind of somebody else who has taken a, you know, a passage of a story that, like you said, was meaningful and applicable to her and apply it, you know, and apply it really well so that you understand absolutely what she's saying. Um, and not only that, but from halfway across the world, you know, taking a piece of culture, which is foreign to her and applying it, you know, so well, right. You know, so that you under, you absolutely understand that she's in another country, you know, speaking another language and absolutely gets what, you know, what Whedon was saying. Um, yeah. You know, and, and can kind of use that to then make choices in her own life, you know, that are positive and everything is definitely mm-hmm. it's like exciting. Cause like, you don't, you don't always see, even if you believe that that happens, you don't always see evidence of it. So, um, sure. It's sure. kind of, uh, refreshing, I think. Um, and it totally makes it like beyond analyzing stories, just being fun. It totally, I feel it makes me feel more validated. Like, you know, to go deep into a story and really think about it is a worthwhile, you know, uh, use of your time, I think. Um, so yeah, no. And that is a really good quote because after angels, 
the last episode showing, you know, coming off of, you know, Holland showing him how, you know, basically evil owns everything and always has and always will. And you're in a big hamster wheel. And what does it matter? Um, you know, to turn that into a hopeful message of, you know, maybe I can't save the world, but that is in a way what gives my actions more weight and more meaning, you know, because all I can do is try to do the right thing in the moment. And, you know, that I think is a really nice uh, sentiment, so. All right, less sentiment, more talk about the okay. episode, I guess. All right, well, so... <laughs> Says um, the guy who started it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of want to continue that. Um, one or two more things to say about kind of meaning and the powers that be with the host. Um, because, you know, we get a, another visit of Angel to him, uh, this time kind of off hours when you know, the bar is closed and he's like alone and in his robe and like everything's locked up. Um, and what was interesting to me about that scene is, again, as I'm trying to figure out exactly where the host is coming from and what his sort of allegiances are or are not, um, you know, the way he kind of like before was kind of, you know, refusing to explicitly guide Angel into any specific course of action, but also giving hints of like what he kind of, you know, where you know his motivations might be. In here, you kind of get like a retroactive, like, you know, I don't even know, like, approval of Angel's actions like after the fact or something you know like there's all these hints of um uh you know the way he says like you've turned a corner uh yay you and it's about time between you and me if it was going to take you much longer to hit your bottom I was going to kick it like this I get the sense that he maybe almost knew that Angel would turn a corner but he couldn't really tell him how or when. And so it was just a matter of kind of waiting for it to happen. Um, you know, and whether that means, I don't know what that means is what I'm saying. Um, you know, and there's a point too where he has to kind of almost remind Angel, I'm not your link with the powers that be, you know, that's Cordy. You need to go reconcile with her because she's your real guide, you know? Um, yeah. But the fact that that's an easy mistake to make, because he certainly seems to be a link with the powers that be, you know, and I think that's an easy mistake for Angel and for me, like the audience member, to start thinking of him as this moral, uh, I don't know, guide or something. Um, sure. Yeah, no. And I think, I mean, we kind of got a taste of that last time, right, when he like said, you know, I can't just tell you what I see. 
like in other people's auras, you know, but I can tell you what I overhear in the restroom. So it's right, like, right. like we do get the sense that like, he's sort of rooting for Angel, but yeah. he's not like, you know, and again, like, we don't know why he, like, is it that he literally can't, like, is he incapable? Is like the magic preventing him from yeah, somehow telling uh, Angel what what's the, you know, in other people's auras or is there like is it just like his code of honor kind of thing like he's not going to do that but if he can figure out a way to sort of subvert uh, right he has like doctor confidentiality rules right 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 um so you know whatever like maybe maybe uh we don't really know but um Yeah, like, we also don't know, like, where his power comes from. Like, is his power sort of, um, indigenous isn't the right word. I I almost said indigenous to him, but, like, you know what I mean? Like, is it sort of part innate? of just innate in him? Yes, thank you. I don't know why indigenous came up. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, is his power sort of innate to him, or is, or is the power something that has been given to him by the powers that be? Like, you know, maybe it's just a talent that he has being the kind of demon that he is, which I, right. I, I believe he, Oh, we were told this. I think, uh, I want to say anagogic demon or whatever. And like, like mm. the idea is that, you know, uh, his kind of demon mm-hmm. is, is can do this sort of thing. Like it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. Uh, power that's given to him by the powers right, that be, right. like 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 Cordy's visions are. That it's right, right. Um, you know, just that that kind of you know thing where he can happen to do this. So, um, anyway, like yeah, like I don't. It is easy to make that mistake because he's friendly, and again, like I think we are meant to believe that he's rooting for Angel. You know, and again, even here, like he gives him a, uh, you know, advice of, hey, go help your friends because they're in danger. Right. <laughs> like, like he does. And maybe that's something he sees in Angel's aura, or maybe it's just something he knows some other way. But one way or the other, like he does help Angel out still. But it's not it's it's, you know, the helping out is, again, it's the putting him on his path. Right. That's sort of the host. Mm-hmm. mission and and like we talked about before we don't really know like is he helping other people you know onto their paths presumably like that seems to mm-hmm. be what he does but if so is that like is he helping like murderous demons on their path to murder more people right. or like whatever like is it possible that maybe there's even if we think he's truly you know wants angel to do what angel's supposed to do why is that maybe that's just because that's who he is he wants everyone to do what they're supposed to do whether it's right. angel you know redeeming himself and saving people or you know ex-murderous demon over there going out and killing bunches of people <laughs> you know we don't right. really know ultimately what's there you can make guesses of course but uh you know the other the other thing is that um well, what you know, it is funny that he like kind of opens up. Like you get the insistent like buzzer, uh, you know, yeah. of Angel, um, and and you know, you also wonder like, 
hmm, what time of night does Caritas close? Like, <laughs> you right. know, it's just like five in the morning or something. Like, we don't really know what time this is. It seems like maybe it's not that late. Um, but, right. you know, because then Angel goes off and, like, gets Wesley and Cordy's up and whatever. But, yeah, like, we don't actually know. And I don't know. It just seems like a weird, weird time. I got way off track. I forget what else I was going to say. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Like we're, this is definitely a reminder of like, even if we count the host as a friend or a potential friend, this isn't, uh, this isn't him, you know, like he, he's, he's not a replacement for the rest of the team. Right. Um, right. And he gently reminds Angel yeah. of that here. Yeah. So speaking of the rest of the team, uh, we then get, uh, which is pretty the big, the biggest part of the episode, and we've left like no time to talk about them. Um, we get Angel, you know, going back and kind of trying to get back and you know very apologetic and trying to make small talk and like being their good graces again and everything. Um, so I'm trying to think of what order I want to go in here. I mean, we leave Cordy, we left Cordy in the kind of cliffhanger. So we kind of knew the situation she was in. So I'm not sure that there's too much more to say about that other than that she's in danger and sort of needs to be, you know, uh, rescued by the group. Um, I did like the thing of how they send her a vision of herself being attacked like a minute before she's attacked. And so it was like, absolutely, you know, no, this is like the most useless vision ever. Um, you know, she can't do anything about it. It's basically telling her what's going to happen in a minute. Um, which kind of, you know, gave me a chuckle. Um, and I did feel validated about, you know, another thing the host said was, you know, when Angel's kind of complaining about, well, why weren't the powers that be more specific, you know, and the host saying like, well, maybe they were and you just didn't listen, um, you know, and there was the thing of, you know, I think I said at the time they did give Cordy visions when, you know, the lawyers were being attacked and Angel ignored them and decided to go, you know, get in on the lawyer killing at the, you know, cocktail party. So, you know, I just felt a little bit vindicated there. You know, <laughs> my theory seems to be kind of accurate. Um, but, well you know, that reminder that Cordy, you know, has this very vital role in the group that she is, you know, and that it's not just, oh, Cordy gets a vision and we know who our next client is, but this idea of she is the direct, you know, conduit from, you know, like a higher purpose sense of, you know, when Cordy gets a vision, everybody needs to pay attention to it because it might be very important. Um, so yeah 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 so um i don't disagree okay um i mean and i guess we'll 
I might as well finish off with Cordy. Um, I also like uh, Wesley's sort of defense of her when Angel's kind of not too worried, like, oh, you know, it's a Friday. She's probably just out, you know, with her friends. And Wesley kind of has to point out the fact that other than them, she doesn't really have any anymore that, you know, she's, you know, she's really taken on the burden because of the visions of, you know, being the one who feels the most directly responsible for all of the people that, you know, are suffering and that they're supposed to be helping. Um, and that unlike Angel, it's not something she can just ignore. Um, sure. Because she's going to continue to get the visions, you know, regardless. So kind of nice to see that, like, you know, character development sort of called out, um, you know, and the line about like, you know, she's not the vain carefree creature she once was. Well, certainly not carefree. So like, right, right. you know, Cordy's still Cordy, but also kind of highlighting how far she's come since the show started. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I mean, we've talked about that progress that she's made, but I mean, it's sort of a testament to see, Wesley like giving voice to yeah. that you know yeah. like of all people <laughs> um yeah. yeah and and you know I mean I think the other thing is too is is uh you know expanding beyond just Cordy like talking again about the changes Wesley has gone through since his first arrival you know in the yep. midway through last season and um the relationship between him and Gunn, which wasn't yeah. always yeah. sort of, uh, it wasn't as jovial and, uh, you know, romantic as it right, kind of right. becomes here. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, like you know, they're yeah, they got a nice healthy romance going on now. You know, um, greeting and stuff, and I mean, I, you know, I mean, again, Wesley took a bullet for Gunn, like he, you know, he like he flat out says that, so. Right. You know, the fact that, you know, that happened, like, I mean, when someone like puts their life on the line for you, like that sort of thing brings two people closer. So not, yeah, not necessarily surprised by it, but, you know, definitely need to acknowledge that it's the case. Um, yeah. 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 And kind of in both cases, showing Angel how much he's missed, you know, that in a, in a lot of ways, they all know each other a lot better now, you know, than certainly than they did when he left, but maybe even better than he knows them. You know, it used to be that Angel was like maybe the, the, the friend that they all had in common, but now there's this sense of the three of them are really a team and Angel is more the outsider. Mm. Um, so, you know, having, all this insight into Cordy and then like seeing Gunn and Wesley greet each other with this like secret best friend handshake, you know, it's kind of like, you know, just showing Angel how much has changed since he left the group. Um, and that they're reluctant to sort of just let that back in, you know, because he did a lot of damage. Um, and I like Cordy's line about, you know, you really hurt my feelings. Like, it just brings it down to such a human level, you know, of 
you know, yeah, these demons are scary and this was painful and I was kind of in danger, but really what I care about is that my friend let me down. Um, and that's really what really hurts, you know, is Angel's betrayal. Um, you know, and his kind of acknowledgement that he has to come back sort of with a contrite attitude, you know, he has to, he's going to work for them and he has to earn their trust because, you know, he hasn't been doing that. Um, you know, so kind of being the guy who can be the muscle and beat up some demons and drive the car and, you know, catch Cordy if she has a vision is sort of, you know, his kind of first steps back into being one of the group, I guess. Um, and kind of deferring to Wesley as like the new sort of leader of the group, you know, um, it's Wesley at the end who says, you know, let's go. Um, you know, so that was sort of interesting to see. I know we're over, so did we have any other important points with them that we wanted to cover? No, I think, and I mean, I don't know that we need to talk much more. I think, you know, a lot of this episode is sort of workhorse, like we've had in other episodes of getting people into places. This time, rather than sort of apart and on their own, like now it's back together. And so... I think, you know, going forward now it's, you know, the stories are, okay, we have the revived team here. What's mm-hmm. going to happen with them? Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So cool. we'll be back next week with uh, another episode of Buffy and some more Doctor Who. All right. See you then. Mm-hmm.